2 Samuel chapter 15 at verse 31. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Jehovah, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it came to pass that when David was come to the top of the ascent where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat rent and earth upon his head. And David said unto him, If thou passest on with me, then thou wilt be a burden unto me. But if thou return to the city and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant, in time past, so will I now be thy servant. Then wilt thou defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. And hast thou not there with thee Zadok and Abiathar the priests? Therefore it shall be that what things soever thou shalt hear out of the king's house, thou shalt tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimeaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, and by them ye shall send unto me everything that ye shall hear. So Hoshai, David's friend, came into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Hushai the archite. Hushai is something of a mystery man, a mystery man of sorts. Well, you might respond and say, that, well, we're told that he is an archite. What's an archite? Who were the archites? Hushai came out of nowhere, as it were. He appears suddenly. It's obvious that David knew who he was and that he knew David. David was making his way up the ascent as we have read. And he utters that ejaculatory prayer regarding Ahithophel, that God would turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And lo and behold, there appears this individual, Hushai, the archite, not really out of nowhere. He was probably up on the mount where David was heading to worship and pray. It was a place that was commonly used by David and by others to worship and pray. That may well be why and probably is why Hushai's clothing was rent and torn and, and he had ashes upon his head because he had been praying and confessing and pleading for what was transpiring with regard to the rebellion of Absalom. We're not told anything about Hushai at all. He's almost like Elijah coming out of nowhere. Elijah the Tishbite. And here's Hushai the Archite just suddenly appearing. The marvelous works of our God. We're told in Joshua 16:2 is the only reference to Archites in the scriptures that I could find. We're told that they uh, resided on the border of Benjamin. And that's all we're told about them. And we're not really certain that Hushai was absolutely an archite. That's the name he has here. I remember Chuck teaching about Samuel 
and realizing after some study that he was actually from a, a Levitical tribe and that he actually had the right to the priest's office thereby. But it's not immediately clear, so I'm not ready to insist that Hushai was definitely an archite, even if we were able to figure out what archites were. But Hushai approaches David, he meets him, and David says unto him, and this is a lot more amazing than the mystery of the person of Hushai. David says to him, if you go with me, basically, he says, if you go with me, you're going to just be a burden. Hushai was probably an older man. You'll just be a burden to me. I don't need any more burdens than what I already have. But listen to this. He says, if you return to the city and say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I have been thy father's servant in time past, so will I now be thy servant. He's counseling. He's directing who shied a lie to go to Absalom and to lie. If you say unto Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king. Now that could be taken ambiguously, perhaps, but it doesn't stop there. As I have been with thy father's servant in time past. Makes it much less ambiguous. And then even further, he says, so will I now be thy servant. Isn't this rather amazing to us? We have a problem in, in ethics here, have we not? How is it that David, the man after God's own heart, can be asking Hushai to spy, to ask Hushai to lie? Is this not somewhat startling? Doesn't it jostle us a little bit when we read this? How can these things be? Is he really expecting Hushai to speak a lie, to break the ninth commandment of God? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor? Well, it's hard to avoid an affirmative answer to that. This is clearly what David desires Hushai to do. It is unmistakable. He may even be commanding him as his king. Say these things to Absalom. Deceive him. Lie to him. Utter this falsehood. This false witness. He is to pretend that he is something that he surely is not. Even if a word was never uttered to pretend you're something, or for a, an individual to pretend that he's something that he's not is a lie in and of itself, is it not? What are we to make of this? What are we to do with regard to this? How are we to reason it out? The man after God's own heart encouraging falsehood, encouraging deception. Is it ever right to lie? Is it ever right to do wrong that good may come of it? Has Christ called us to be pragmatists? Does wartime make a difference? Spying and lying. Look at the issue of Rahab the harlot in the book of Joshua. 
in the second chapter, Rahab the harlot is, is one of the first that may come to mind with regard to this ethics problem. What do we read about Rahab the harlot? You remember the story that Joshua sent out Israelites, spies, to spy out the land of Jericho. And that they came into Jericho. And the king of Jericho sent unto Rahab. And he said to Rahab, he said, uh, there have been seen a couple of Israelites. Do you know anything about this? Somebody even said that they have entered into your house. Bring them out. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And here's what she told the king, her king, king of Jericho. Yea, the men came unto me, but I knew not whence they were. Was that the truth? I knew not whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate when it was dark that the men went out. Whither the men went, I know not. I don't know where they went. And all the while they were up on the roof of her house where she had hidden them under stalks of flax. She said, like the old Westerns, you know, they went that away when actually they had gone that away. She lied, a blatant, blatant lie to her king. Where is she chastised for that? Where is she rebuked for that? Is she rebuked at all? One writer has said, quote, Rahab's faith, like ours, was not free from defect, for her falsehoods proceeded from one who failed to trust God fully. This writer accuses her of wrongdoing and of failing to trust God fully. She's a woman and the only individual, it would appear, in this entire huge city, walled city of Jericho, that's willing to hide these spies, willing to risk her life for them. And this writer says she failed to trust God fully. What is that all about? Is it ever right to lie? This writer thinks not. It's never right to lie. It's never right to do wrong. The ends do not justify the means. We're not pragmatists. So he has said. The same writer says of our subject, David, in the case of Hushai, quote, various attempts have been made seeking to vindicate David for sending Hushai to become a spy for him in Absalom's camp. Strategy may be permissible in warfare, but nothing could justify the king in causing Hushai to act and utter a lie. Nothing could justify the king in causing Hushai to act and utter a lie. It is true that God overruled, he goes on to say, and through Hushai defeated Ahithophel's council. But that no more proves he approved of this deception than did the flowing of water from the smitten rock show God's approbation of Moses' anger. It's never right to lie. David was wrong. 
David broke the ninth commandment. David encouraged or ordered Hushai to break the ninth commandment. It's never right to lie, says this writer. And he's not alone, although I believe that he's in the minority. Let me caution each one of us against the temptation to follow any individual without reservation. Any individual man, of course. To follow any commentator without reservation. To follow any writer without reservation. To follow any Christian without reservation. I caution you. God uses his own people to bring his elect to himself. Still, there is a real danger. A real danger possible in following the human means that brought one to Christ. We must weigh all things according to God's word. Yes, the Lord may have used an individual to bring you to God through Jesus Christ, through the blood of the Lamb. That doesn't mean that everything he says or everything he teaches is correct according to scripture. And I would caution us to beware of that. This was my own experience when I was brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And the writer that I was enjoying very much, being used of God to draw me unto God through Christ. I started scooping up a number of his books and I was wallowing in them and enjoying them and, and being fed by them. But there, everything he said wasn't true. It wasn't absolutely right. And he's the one that I just quoted. It's never right to lie. And yet, what does the word say? What does the word say about Rahab? What does the word have to say with regard to David and Hushai? Nothing is said contrary to David's behavior by God. Nothing is said contrary to Rahab's behavior. In fact, the Lord God, the Holy Spirit, has inspired James in his epistle to write favorably of Rahab, has he not? In James, in the second chapter, you're probably familiar with that, where we read, and in like manner, was not Rahab also justified? Rahab the harlot justified by works? How, what works? In that she received the messengers and sent them out another way. She said they went that away when they had gone that away. Actually, they were up on the roof. She lied. A bald-faced lie, as they call it. And yet James, inspired writer of that epistle, says that she is justified by these works. And the writer slash preacher to the Hebrews has included her in his catalog of faith in chapter 11 of that book. By faith, Rahab the harlot perished not with them that were disobedient, having received the spies with peace. This other writer, remember, said she failed to trust God fully. The, the preacher to the Hebrews says, by faith, she perished not with them that were disobedient. Didn't say she was disobedient. What are we to do with these things? Ah. 
In fact, not only is she in that catalog, she's the only woman in that catalog actually mentioned by name apart from Abraham's wife, Sarah. And that's not bad company to be in. We had a, I believe the class was called Biblical Ethics in Seminary. And we had uh, lengthy discussions about this matter. And I was, had still been unswayed from my position that I had assumed from that writer I mentioned. It's never right to lie. I remember one of the professors bringing into the discussion, illustrating the, the problem with, uh, you know, someone running down the streets and turning down an alley and, and right behind him almost is a man with a knife. Which way did they go? Which way did they go? What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to say they went that way? You don't want to say, well, they went down that alley, which would mean certain death for that individual probably. So what are you supposed to do? This man said that you lie. <laughs> you say they went that way. I suggested you just say, I'm not going to tell you and trust God for the outcome. And I thought at the time that was, that was a good answer. The problem is, it's not Rahab's answer. And it's not the answer that we find in Scripture. There is a difference, is there not? During wartime, in battles, there is a difference, is there not? Is not strategy allowed in many places in the Scriptures with regard to this? If you're not supposed to lie in war, how do you justify camouflage? How do you justify camouflaging your tank or, or your camp or whatever so that even during the war between the states when balloons came over, they wouldn't know that there are uh, 3,000 men down there and so on. Is that not tell, telling a lie? Hey, guess what? There's nobody here. That amounts to lying, doesn't it? Is camouflage not bearing false witness? It seems, it seems that during wartime that such stratagems are permitted even that involve falsehood. We have, a, we have an example given to us again in the book of Joshua, and this is really remarkable. I believe, in Joshua in the eighth chapter. You remember how that after the Jericho had been delivered into the Israelites' hand through the means that God appointed to them circling the city and so on, the walls came tumbling down, all except, of course, the portion of the wall upon which Rahab's house was. But the walls came down. And so the next city was much smaller, Ai. And these people had gotten real cocky and arrogant and bold. And they, they sent spies, Joshua did, and they came back and said, oh, it's nothing, it's just a little city. Still giving themselves credit for Jericho, the victory there. Oh, you, you know, you don't have to send everybody, just send a few thousand. That city's nothing. So Joshua, and here's his error, he didn't seek counsel of the Lord. He listened to those 
spies, and he sent 3,000. And the men of Ai came out and, and killed several Israelites and caused them to flee. And of course, Joshua and the Israelites repented of this and cried unto God and so on. And God was, in his merciful way, uh, embraced their repentance. But listen to what he says in the eighth chapter. And Jehovah said unto Joshua, he's telling him, we're going to go ahead. You're going to take Ai, but here's how you're going to do it. Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into thy hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. And thou shalt do to Ai and her king as thou didst unto Jericho and her king. Only the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall ye take for a prey unto yourselves. You see, that wasn't allowed with Jericho and that's what brought all this down upon them was because of the sin of Achish. Listen to this third verse, or the, the end of the second. Set thee an ambush for the city behind it. This is God talking to Joshua. Set an ambush behind it. You know how they did that? They set a few thousand men. They hid them somewhere down the road, we could say, hiding while more thousands of the Israelites were, were waiting over here and attacked the city. And the plan was that when the, when the men of Ai came out, when they come out like they did before, like we did before, run from them, flee from them, make them think that you're afraid and that you're not going to engage them in battle. So they did that. This was all told them by God himself. So they lured the men out of the city of Ai with a false presentation, with a lie. And it worked. They drew the men out, and the others went in and burned the city. And then they had the men of Ai between them, and they slaughtered them. All at God's direction. Set an ambush for the city behind it, Jehovah had told them. I not only approve of it, I'm telling you how to do it. So what are we to make of that? What are we to do? God himself gave these express directions to Joshua to deceive and ambush Ai. So now here back to Hushai and David. Hushai goes back to the city, joins himself to the company of Absalom and his men. Is there a mole in the house? Yeah, Hushai's the mole now. He's David's mole. Espionage is David's strategical method of choice. We know what espionage is, spying. We know what a mole is. That's somebody in the company of the enemy pretending he's one of them so that he can thwart their designs one way or another. There are many cases of lying related to war in the scriptures. We'll see at least one more and probably maybe more than one before we get through the book of 2 Samuel. Lying related to wartime. Are there any exceptions? I'm not aware of any exceptions. 
consider some of the lies that were told in, in the scriptures. Jacob deceiving his own father Isaac, pretending he was Esau, lying to him. You know, he had he had this this lambskin or something on his hands because Esau was a hairy man and Isaac is feeling that and and saying basically in our vernacular maybe you sure you ain't Jacob you don't smell like Esau and so on and he lied he told him he was Esau he lied and God did not approve of that that's the point I'm making we find these other lies in scriptures but they're lies that we're not approved of Remember the two prophets in 1 Kings. The prophet that came to Jeroboam and pronounced God's displeasure against his false worship and so on. And God had told that prophet, that old prophet, to go out a different way. But he was seduced by another prophet. And we read right in the scriptures that he told him, oh, God's spoken to me. And he wants you to come with me and spend a couple nights. And then go out that other way, not the way God told you to go out, but the way that I'll tell you, and the scriptures say expressly, but he lied. It's not approved of by God, but he lied. And then, of course, there's the famous occasion of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, chapter 5, I believe, and how that Peter accused them correctly of having lied to God the Holy Spirit, and they were smitten, struck dead on the spot. God does not approve of lying, but he seems to give approbation during wartime. But the commandment still stands, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. We're not to think that lying is, is all right, but there are exceptions to it with regard to wartime, it seems that the scriptures teach. And it would be good for us probably if we remember when we think about this matter that it was false witnesses that finalized the doom of our Savior before the high priest when he brought false witnesses before him. Lying witnesses. Hushai. We'll leave him in Jerusalem for the time being, but I want to speak about him a little bit before we conclude. We read in 1 Chronicles 27:33. You don't need to turn there. The only other place besides 2 Samuel where Hushai is mentioned, other than when his son is named in Kings, and it says the son of Hushai. The only time that Hushai is mentioned, besides that, outside of 2 Samuel, is here in Chronicles, where we read also Jonathan, David's uncle, was a counselor, a man of understanding and a scribe. And Jehiel, the son of Hakmoni, was with the king's sons, and Ahithophel, Ahithophel was the king's counselor, and Hushai the archite was the king's friend. And after Ahithophel was Jehoiada, the son of Beniah, and Abiathar, and the captain of the king's host was Joab. Hushai the archite, we're told, was the king's friend. 
But you understand when I, that passage I just read that this is a list of officers of the king's court. This is a listing of the officers of the king's court. Is it reasonable to think that he just threw in that God the Holy Spirit, that the writer of Chronicles just threw in, oh, this guy, this guy was there too. He's just a friend of David's. Many writers do not believe that this speaks only <coughs> of the fact that David and Hushai were buddies, friends. Rather, it is considered that this was a particular office in the court of the king. Friend of the king. Capital F, friend of the king. Perhaps in our day we might think a, a chief counselor or even chief of staff. Something of that sort. Uh, an, an individual, a trusted confidant, his closest perhaps, and even something perhaps akin to his best man. But they believe that it's a formal office. David sent Hushai, his friend, back to be useful for his kingdom. Are we the friends of the bridegroom? Does scripture not teach that we are the friends of the bridegroom? And what is intended by the title, friend of the king? Is it like the friend of the court, a friend of David? Is it not simply an honorary title, but, but it could also denote a royal official of high standing, perhaps in David's cabinet? Friend of the king. Friend of the bridegroom, to swing it into the New Testament. You remember John Baptist's words when he said in the third chapter of John's Gospel, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom that standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Could this situation here that we have in this passage, David sending Hushai back, <coughs> I'm not talking about the lying and spying at this moment, but could this, uh, could this passage be a subtle illustration of Christ leaving his body in the world, his church, his people to continue his work as he leaves as he leaves we've seen a number of types and a number of suspected types in this account of the life of David he's been denominated the, the most conspicuous type the most eminent type perhaps of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have in the scriptures and I'm not suggesting necessarily that this is a type, but I'm gonna call it an illustration at the very least, and maybe it is a type. But we see, just like Christ has left his church behind, his body. Have you never asked the question, when, when God regenerated my heart and brought me to the Savior, why didn't he just take me up then? Why, why do I have to stay here? Paul said, far better to be with Christ but I know God wants me here for the time being. Could this be an illustration of that feature of the gospel? 
to continue the work of Christ on earth. Is that not what the church is called to do? We were looking at this in Sunday school quite a bit. Preaching the gospel, communicating with Christ, with God, through Christ, in prayer. Even as Hushai was, was to communicate with his king, so we are to communicate with ours. Are we not to be instruments in praying for his return? Can you imagine that Hoshai was not praying for the day when his king, David, would return and would be reinstated in Jerusalem? And are we not called to pray for that day of the Lord when Jesus Christ shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God to take his people to himself? We are to be instruments in praying for that, and not only praying for it, but waiting for it, in bringing in his kingdom through representing Christ to the world, through the preaching of the world, excuse me, the preaching of the word, being salt and light, being salt and light. That's what Christ has taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. He didn't say you're supposed to try to make yourself look like salt or look like light. You are salt and you are light. And this is what we are to be before the world until the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor wherewith Shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under the bushel, but on the stand. And it shineth unto all that are in the house. Even so, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Is that not what we were discussing in Sunday school? Are we not to be salt and light? Fruit was mentioned. Leaven has been mentioned by Chuck in his messages on this passage. We are to be these things. We might never speak a word. We might never be given an opportunity to speak a word. Nobody's saying anything about going over to Russia or going to Africa or, or whatever and, and calling ourselves evangelists out of our own brain or something. But we are told to be salt. We are told that we are salt. And we are told that we are light. That, that men may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We're to be these things. And if these things, if this salt and this light causes somebody to ask us of the reason of our hope, then by all means, open your mouth and tell them what the reason of your hope is. That it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our Redeemer, our great High Priest, our Lord and Savior. It is Him. And Paul tells us in, in like language that we may become, in, to the Philippians, says that ye may become blameless and harmless children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom ye are seen as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. 
Can we hold forth the word of life without opening our mouths? I believe we can. I remember quite a number of years ago <coughs> visiting an individual. I was with the pastor of the church at, that we were members of at the time in Michigan, and we were visiting this, this uh, third party that we had both known for a while. And we were just having a nice visit and talking, and, and, and one of the members of, of our church, uh, a young man from Iowa named Lane Opakala. Finished, you think? Lane Opakala. But at any rate, this, this other fellow, this other friend, the one we were visiting, something was said about Leno's father, George Pakala, and he said, George Pakala, did you say George Pakala? And anyway, we explained the connection, and here it turns out that they had worked together for John Deere in Iowa years ago. But here's what this man said about George Pakala's testimony. George Pakala, a very quiet, a very, very diligent Christian, a very loving Christian, but very quiet. But this man said about George Packley, he said, I always thought there was something different about him when he learned that he was a Christian. I believe that that is what we are to be. We are to be the salt of the earth. We are to be the light of the world. Are we not to stand for Christ? Are we not to continue watching and praying? Are we not to continue hearing him, Christ, through his word? Are we not to be seen as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, as Paul has said? And yes, listening, listening for the sound, listening for that sound. Behold, the bridegroom. If the Holy Spirit has called you to be an evangelist, by all means, make sure it agrees with the scriptures. But by all means. But whatever, whatever the Lord calls you to do, we know that he has called us to be salt in the earth and light, the light of the world. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we acknowledge and confess these truths, setting them before us, and we pray, admitting our great need of God the Holy Spirit, our great need of thy help, the strength of Christ, in order to be what we are by thy grace, to be salt, to be light. Help us, oh, Lord our God, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you'd stand for the benediction, it's from the first epistle of John. The first epistle of John, the fifth chapter and the 20th verse. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Amen.